Chapter Three of the Fair Rewards by Thomas Beer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fair Rewards by Thomas Beer. Chapter Three. Full Bloom. The family council prudently allowed Mark to adopt his brother's orphan, Margaret. He sometimes borrowed Gertie Bernamer to keep the dark child company in his New York flat. By 1905, the borrowing settled into a habit. Gertie provided activity for a French nurse and then for an English governess, dispatched by Olive Ilden. He was a silent, restless creature. He disliked motor cars for his own unrevealed reason that they resembled the hearses of his uncle's funeral. He had a prejudice against small Margaret because she looked like her dead mother, an objectionable person, smelling of orange water, and because Mark made such a fuss over the child. He learned to read newspapers, copying Mark's breakfast occupation, and in September 1907 noted that Carlson and Walling would tonight inaugurate their partnership by the presentation of Red Winter at their new 45th Street Theater. Inaugurate charmed Gertie. It conveyed an image of Mark and the bony Mr. Carlson doing something with a monstrous auger. Mark had forever stopped acting in May would henceforth manage. Curiosity pulled Gertie from the window-seat of his playroom in Mark's new house on 55th Street. He waited for a moment when the governess, Miss Converse, was scolding young Margaret and couldn't see him slide down the hall stairs. He scuttled west, then south, and navigated Broadway until he reached the mad corner of 45th Street, where a gentleman took him by the collar of his blouse and halted him. Where are you going? Gertie recognized a quiet character who came to luncheons now and then. He said, Hello, Mr. Froman, dutifully, and looked about for the theater. The stooping man detained him gravely. I thought you weren't old enough for shows. I'm looking for Mark. Mr. Froman chuckled, leaning on a stick. He said, He's in his office. Where's that? Gertie stared past the pointing stick and saw a cream face of columns and windows. He saw the stone above a ring of heads. People were gaping at his calm acquaintance, as if this plump, tired man was a kicking horse. He remembered civility and asked, How's your rheumatism? Better, said Mr. Froman, and limped away. Gertie pushed scornfully past the gapers and trotted into the white vestibule of the theater, where men were arranging flowers, Horseshoes of orchids, ugly and damp, roses in all tints, lumps of unknown bloom on standards wrapped in silver foil. A red-haired, hatless youth listed the cards dangling from these treasures and told Gertie to go to hell when Gertie asked for his uncle, but another man nodded to the stairs of yellow, slick marble. On the landing, Gertie found a door stenciled in gold, Carlson and Walling. Gertie stood wondering at the furious shades of neckties and the gray hard hats which Miss Converse thought vulgar. "'My God,' said Carlson, "'Mark, look at that coming in.' Mark groaned. He had a compact with Mrs. Bernamer that the borrowed boy shouldn't enter a theater until he was twelve. He was tall enough for twelve, but he was only nine. He stayed in the doorway, studying the red walls of the room his white socks far apart, and his hands thrust into the pockets of his short loose breeches. 
the callers stared at the tough legs brown from a summer on the farm the boy's one patent beauty his soft pale hair was hidden by his english sailor cap and his white blouse was spotted with ink stains but the men grinned and chuckled admiringly gertie made no sound when carlson set him on the top of the bookcase but gazed contemptuously at the crowding men and let himself be petted when do you inaugurate mark eight fifteen when you'll be in bed sonny gertie drawled i don't get to bed till quarter of nine and you ought to know that by this time he frowned partly closing his dark blue eyes as the men laughed what are all those flowers for a man in a corner lifted his white face from a book and whispered those are gifts the greeks brought this caused stillness then unpleasing chuckles gertie climbed down from the bookcase and went to talk to mr fitch they talked of french lessons and the vagaries of governesses the other callers complimented mark on the boy's good looks the flattery was soothing after the strain of the last rehearsal mark knew it for flattery gertie's face was too long his sober mouth too wide and his jaw prematurely square but the compliments were the due of a successful actor turned manager he sat for a little watching mr fitch lazily chat with the boy as though he were a grown man on the playwright's warning he had lately published a careful interview announcing gertie and margot as adopted children and his relationship to them but people still probably reported gertie an illegitimate son and margot his daughter by cora boyle mark sighed and took gertie down through the flowers to see the cream and gold playhouse where men were squirting perfume from syringes along the red aisles killing the smell of paint he let gertie have a syringe and went into the vestibule the red-haired clerk listing the gifts of other managers handed him the card wet from its journey in a ball of pink roses mrs cosmo rand who the devil is mrs cosmo rand billy the clerk scratched his ear and grinned you'd ought to know sir but i don't cosmo rand heard of him leffler's got him in something who's she miss cora boyle said the clerk and strolled off to insult a messenger bringing in more flowers mark had a curious disheartening shock he didn't bow to cora boyle on the street what right had she to send him flowers it must be a passing rudeness she might remember that he disliked pink roses mark rested on the ledge of the box office brooding but she might mean to be pleasant her manager leffler was on bad terms with carlson this might be a dictated indirect peace offering mark patted the florid carved stone of the ledge and thought cora's new play wasn't a success the reviews had been tart she might be tired of leffler mark was perplexed but the hunt for motives always wearied him a scarlet petticoat went by outside the vestibule and led off his mind he bade his treasurer telephone for the motor and stood joking with the man through the box-office window until a flat stop in the noise behind him made mark turn his head the florists and clerks were motionless regarding the street a coupe had stopped a footman was helping a woman and a tumult of varied flowers to the sidewalk she came forward to the doors gallantly 
her face quite hidden in the enormous bouquet. But the treasurer said, By gee, I'd know her in hell by her walk, and chuckled. She tripped on the sill and screamed gaily to Mark in French. Mark jumped to catch the sheaf of yellow roses. Miss Held waved her gray gloves wide and dipped her chin. Mark Antoine, and how does Beatrice get along to teach you French? Pretty fair. Haven't had much time lately. Thought you'd taken your show on the road, Anna. Next week. Up the stairs, someone began to whistle La Petite Tonquinoise. The little woman vibrated inside the gray case of her lacy gown and pursed her lips. Oh, but I am sick of that tune. Make him stop. The whistler heard and ceased. Miss Held swayed to and fro among the flowers, noting cards. She adopted a huge orchid for her waist and smiled down at it. A dozen grins woke in the collecting crowd. Mark was aware of upholsterers oozing from the theater. Miss Held hummed from gift to gift, Le Moine, David, nice lilies. She moved in a succession of swift steps that seemed balanced leaps. One of the florist girls sighed a positive sob of envy. The curving body and the embellished eyes kept the crowd still. The soft gloves drooped on the hard luster of the stirring arms. Mark wondered at her cool sardonic mastery of attention. She was bored, unwell, and her frock was nothing new. She was Anna Held, and the people were edging in from the sidewalk to look at her. Like to see the house, Anna? Oh, no. I very well know what that would be. All red and gold fishes in the ceiling, eh? No, I must go away. She strolled off toward her carriage, chattering sudden French, which Mark did not understand. He heard an immense discussion surge up in the vestibule as he shut the coupe door, walked through it into the theater where two upholsterers were quarreling over the age of the paragon, and where Mark bumped up against a man in brown who seemed to inspect the gold dolphins of the vault. Clumsy, said the man, briskly. Didn't see you, sir. I meant the decoration. The man flicked a hand at the ceiling and the red boxes. Like Augustin Daly's first house, but much worse. We should have passed that. Guilt. It's the scortum antemortem in architecture. He jammed a cigarette between the straight lips of his flushed face and went on in a rattle of dry syllables. One should write a monograph on gold paint in the theatrical temperament. Plush in passion. Stigmata. Can you give me a match? Where's Carlson's office? He bustled out of the foyer. Mark wearily tore Cora Boyle's card in his tanned fingers and nodded. The stranger was right. This new theater was stale. The gold sparkled stupidly. The shades of velvet were afflicting, but Carlson liked it. Mark sighed and thought, rather sadly, that his patron's whole concept of the trade was vulgar and outworn, like this gaudy expense. Red velvet, heavy gold, bright lamps, the trappings of his apprenticeship. Old actors told Mark that this was a variant of the very first daily theater. The stranger was right then. Mark wondered and went upstairs to the office, but the flushed man was gone. That feller Hunnaker was in trying to get me to hire some orchestra leader. Carlson said. But I thought Hunnaker was a young man, Mark answered. Mr. Fitch whispered from his corner. He hasn't any particular age. What was that riot downstairs, Mark? 
Anna Held dropped in and left some flowers. She ain't looking well. The playwright closed his magazine and lifted himself from the chair, assuming his strange furry hat. We have just so much vitality. She's losing hers. But if she died tomorrow, it would make almost as much noise as killing a president. And that's quite right. Presidents never make anyone feel sinful. Good night. Carlson asked, You're coming tonight, Clyde. Not feeling right. Thanks. Mark followed the bent back down the stairs. Fitch was stooped by a lounger at the doors, loaned the old fellow ten dollars and passed, unobtrusive, along 45th Street. He went shadow-like in his vivid dress. Like the man, Mark frowned. The exhausted courtesy, the slow voice, always left him puzzled. It was as though the playwright's prosperity kept within it a dead core of something pained, as if the ghost of an old hunger somehow lived on under the colored superfluity. Mark's motor arrived outside. He went to whistle Gertie up from an investigation of the orchestra pit. All the bulbs burned about the house. For a second, Mark liked the place. Then the gilt and mulberry hangings bothered him. He chased Gertie up an aisle to the vestibule. The treasurer slipped from the box office to say, Young Rand just called up. I said you wasn't here. Who? Cora Boyle's new husband, that English kid. Mark shrugged and shoved Gertie into the dull blue limousine at the curb. The motor took him away from the theater and away from several beckoning hands on the sidewalk. His shift to managership had changed the fashion of salutes. People now beckoned him with a posture of confidential affection and earnestness. They had friends to recommend, deep suggestions. Carlson had warned him, Mind, you're a kid with a pocket full of candy now. You've stopped being just one of the gang. Better ride in cabs if you want to get any place. Well, the motor, with its adorable slippery blue crust, kept people at a distance. Mark wound an arm about Gertie and pulled himself into a corner of the seat. The car was hampered by a dilatory van that lurched ahead of its hood. The chauffeur cursed in Canadian French, and a messenger boy on the van's tail cursed back, joyously foul, emptily shooting accusations of all sins in a sweet, sexless howl that pierced the glass about Mark and made him grin, absently amused. He's mad said Gertie, dispassionately. No, he's just talking, son. Huh? Gertie grunted, trying to match the words with ordinary conversation. The messenger boy was plainly an accomplished fellow. The van rolled over Broadway in a shock of light and dust. Gertie saw Red Winter on a poster and asked, Is this Red Winter a good play, Mark? Pretty fair, honey. Well, can I come to it? No. Why? Too dirty, Mark said, then, all about killin' folks, son. Gertie argued, well, Lohengrin is all about killing people, and Miss Converse took me to see that, and it was in Dutch. German, sonny. I like French better in German. Gertie yawned, waving a leg in the air, and went on. I think Broadway's ugly. You're right, Mark said, enchanted by such taste. Yet Carlson really liked to stroll on Broadway, and Cora Boyle had often led Mark for dusty hours through this complexity of hesitant, garrulous people. 
along these sidewalks where there was nothing to be seen. He rubbed his jaw and thought of Paris, viewed last summer, of the long swooping street at Winchester, gilt in the afterglow. Oh, after dark Broadway was tolerable. Then the revolving people were shapes of no consequence, and with a little mist. These lights were aqueous, flotillas of shimmering points on a hovering, uncertain vastness. Now the roadway was a dappled smear of bodies. The sidewalks writhed unseemly, but Cora Boyle liked it. The pretty, dark-haired dancer, just then lodged at Mark's cost, had rooms overlooking the new width above 42nd Street, and she liked that. And she liked the scenery of Red Winter. Poor stuff, he thought. He cursed scene painters. Charles Frohman had heard of a fellow who'd studied the art in Berlin and made astonishing sets. He must telephone Frohman and get the man's name. He was tired. Red Winter had tired him. The leading woman had a way of saying California through her nose that had vexed him all week. A poor play. His head was full of jagged, swift ideas, of memories. Eddie Bernamer milking a young cow against a sulphur wall and laughing when Mark tried to sketch him on the flyleaf of an algebra. Cora Boyle swaggering into rectors in a blue dress. Clyde Fitch telling little Margaret that her name was Margot. Stanford White shouting with laughter because Mark softened the C.H. of architecture. Why hadn't they given White a billion dollars and let him build the whole city into charms of tranquil, columnar symmetry? Gertie knew that his uncle was oppressed. When Mark thought hard, he stroked the scar on his jaw. Gertie wanted to talk now, and tossed a leg over Mark's black, rocky knee. What are you thinking about, Mark? Just bosh. What's Margot been doing all day? Having a bellyache. That terrified Mark. He sweated suddenly and called through the tube, bidding the driver to hurry. Spinal meningitis, he read, began with nausea. But when he ran into the paneled library of his house, Margot was playing with her largest doll, and the angular governess assured him, in simple French, that a pill had set things right. Margot lifted her black eyes and said, rubbing her stomach, I was ill, Papa, in her leisurely way. Ate breakfast too fast, Gertie said, in grim displeasure, watching Mark double his lean height and began to cuddle Margot. Margot stared at her cousin with an aggrieved brief pout, and then wound herself into Mark's lap. The large doll was named Aunt Sadie for Mrs. Bernamer. Margot said, Miss Converse fixed Aunt Sadie's drawers, Papa, and her brown face rippled as she displayed three stitches. Then she righted the doll and gazed at Mark devotedly, solemnly, preening her starched skirt of pink linen. Pink went with her black hair and her tawny skin. Mark touched a roaming mesh of her hair, and her face rippled once more. Her skin had this amber haze, like the water of a pool in the pine forest behind the farm. In that pool he had bathed with her father through endless afternoons, idling on until other boys lagged off, and the shadows were ink on the crumbled ochre clay of the margin where pink boneset grew. 
And now Joe was dead, and his black-haired wife was dead, an unskilled cook before marriage, half Irish, half Italian, a good sleepy woman who ate with her knife and wore a chaplet blessed for her Roman mother by some pope. Margot would never know them. He kissed her hair. She was this warm bubble enclosed in his arms. Love me any, sister? Course, said Margot. Gertie snorted and stalked away. Mark talked to the stiff governess and patted Margot. Miss Converse sewed and chatted about Conrad's novels, then getting fashionable. She assented. Very interesting, romantic, of course. I dare say color attracts you. Of course, said Mark. And what if they are romantic? She had some vague objection. If she bored him, Mark was still grateful that she hadn't tried to marry him. She was necessary to the training of the children, but her buff, bulky face wasn't alluring, and her gowns hurt him by a prevalence of mole embroidery and rumpled lace. She was a gentlewoman, wonderfully learned and obliging about his pet airs on the piano. Mark talked and wished that he could escape, like Gertie, who went to practice handsprings in the White Hall and slid downstairs on the note of the doorbell. Gertie slid along the handrail of black wood, so admired by callers, and jumped for the dining room, which had doors of glass coated in blue silk. These doors opened into the drawing room, which Gertie despised for its furniture all black and silver, and its hangings of cloudy tapestry, impossibly noiseless when one bounced balls against them. Yet people called it a lovely room. And now, peering through a rift of the blue silk, Gertie saw the butler turn a visitor into this space, and the visitor looked about with brown eyes seeming to admire. Gertie speculated, and decided that this slight man was an actor come to talk to Mark about a part. His hair curled, his overcoat clung to his middle neatly, his white gaiters were unspotted, his pale mustache didn't overhang his little mouth. He was visibly an actor. Gertie had examined many through this spy-hole, and like many of the fellows went to glance at a circular mirror above the cabinet with tiny doors, which Miss Converse called the Sienese. As Mark's feet descended, the man straightened himself and began to smile. Gertie listened to the jar of his high voice against Mark's fuller drawl. Mr. Rand? Yes. Don't think we ever met. Dare say you know who I am and all that. Yes, said Mark. Gertie noted the long pause. He held that actors were a talkative lot. Mr. Rand worked with his mustache an indefinite time before he spoke again. My wife sent me along. I'm a sort of ambassador, you know. Matter of business, entirely. Mark said, I see, wondering how old the man was. The mustache had an appearance of soft youth. He smiled, wanting Cora's third husband to be at ease, and nodded to a chair. Oh, thanks, no. Mrs. Rand wants to know if you'd mind meeting her. At her hotel, for instance. I don't mind at all, Mark lied. Glad to, any time. Then she may let you know. Thanks ever so. Good luck to your play tonight, said the young man, and walked out gracefully. Gertie came through the glass doors and asked, Who's he? Mark lifted the pliant, hard body in the air. He fancied that Gertie must feel something odd here. 
How old would you say he was, darling? Dunno. Who's Mrs. Rand? An actress. Put me down, said Gertie. My pants are coming off. Mark breathed comfortably, helped the boy on his knee, tightened the white trousers, and passed into dotage. Eddie Bernamer and Joe Walling had begotten these bodies. The fact mattered nothing. Mark was a father. He had possession. When things went wrong, he could come home to gloat over Margot and Gertie. He promised, I shan't be busy now for a week. We'll ride in the park and feed the squirrels, Sonny. All right. Say, Mark, you're all thin. There's the doorbell again. Oh, say, a lady telephoned at noon. Her name was Miss Monroe, and she wanted you to call her up. I like her nerve. Gertie jumped at this loud snort of his uncle. Who's she? She's an actress, Mark stammered, hoping the boy wouldn't go on, and Carlson came in, his yellow face splotched as though he'd been walking fast. That Rand squirt been here? he yelled at Mark. Yes, why? I passed him. What's he want? Me to meet her. You going to? Guess I better, Mr. Carlson. Carlson jabbed Gertie's stomach with his cane and panted. I can tell you what she wants and don't listen to it, neither. She's had a fight with Billy Leffler. He won't put this whelp she married in her company. I bet she quits Leffler. Her show's no good anyhow. Well, I won't take her on. She's a second-rater. She's an onion. I won't have her for nothing. Don't you get sentimental about Cora Boyle any more, son. You needn't worry, said Mark, patting Gertie's ear. Gertie sat up and inquired, Is that the Cora Boyle Grandpapa says was a loose-footed heifer? So Carlson broke into screaming mirth. Mark flushed and mumbled, sent the boy away, and scowled respectfully at his partner. Sometimes Carlson's crude amusement stung him. For God's sake, don't talk of her in front of the kids, sir. All right, son. Going to let Gertie come to the show tonight? Not much. The old man lounged into a chair and jeered at his fosterling. Mark's horror diverted him. He yapped. Still think it's a dirty show, do you? Yes. Oh, I don't know. If there was anything to the slop but the second act, I wouldn't care. Nothing but Sappho over again, old as the hills. What's new in the show business, son? The Merry Widow is, Mark laughed, and you wouldn't buy it. Savage is bringing it in, week after next. They were playing the music at Rector's last night. Look here, the set for the last act is all wrong still. Those green curtains. You and your sets, God, said Carlson. You ought to have been a scene painter. I wish I could be, for about one week. Mark let a grievance loose, slapping his leg. These people make me sick. You tell them you want something new, and they trot out some sketch of a room that everyone's seen for twenty years. They never think of. You ain't ever satisfied. You act like a scenery made a show. Mark sighed. Well, we're not giving the public its money's worth with this piece. The scenery's mediocre. Come up and see Margot. The old man poked Margot's doll with a shaking thumb and called her Maggie to see her scowl like Mark. The little girl's solemn vanity delighted him. He was also delighted by Gertie, who became an embodied sneer when Mark fondled Margot. The boy watched Mark kiss this female nuisance, then walked haughtily out of the library and set to work banging the piano in the upper playroom. All you need's a wife and a mother-in-law and you'd have a happy home, 
Carlson said, when Mark let him out the front door. Think I haven't? I suppose you have. Ain't any truth in this that you're going to marry that Monroe gal? No, I gave her a ring last week. I suppose she's been airing it. Sure, you big calf, the old man said with gloom. You always act so kind of surprised when one of them brags of you. You ain't but twenty-nine and you're a fine-looking jackass. Of course she'll show off her solitaire. A gal's as vain as a man any day. One of them will get you married yet. Yell at that cab, son. My legs are mighty tired. See you at eight sharp. Now, mind, I won't have nothing to say to Cora Boyle. Mark waited until the opening night of The Merry Widow for more news of Cora Boyle. She deserted her manager, Leffler, while Red Winter was in the first week of its run at the 45th Street Theater. Mark saw her lunching in the Knickerbocker Grill with her young husband and a critic, who always touted her as the successor of Ada Rian. A busybody assured Mark that Cosmo Rand was twenty. Cora was thirty-one. All three of her husbands, then, were younger. The oddity of theatrical marriage still alarmed Mark. In Fayetteville, it was a fixed convention that girls should be younger than their husbands. But she was luscious to see at the Merry Widow opening. Mark thought how well she looked, hung above the crowd in the green-lined box. She found novel fashions of massing her hair. That night it rose in a black peak, sustained by silver combs. She kept a yellow cloak, slung across one bare shoulder, concealing her gown. Against the gentle green of her background appeared three men. Rand wore a single eyeglass that sparkled duly when the outer lights were low. Through the music and the applause, Mark was conscious of the box and of Cora's red-feathered fan. Her second husband, a thin Jewish comedian, went up to shake hands between the acts. Women behind Mark giggled wildly. He wandered into the bronze lobby where men were already whistling the slow melody of Aida. He was chaffed by an Irish actor-manager born in Chicago whose accent was a triumph of maintained vowels. And why don't you go shake hands with Cora, boy? Shut up, Terry. Come have a drink. He steered his friend to a new bar. The Irishman was rather drunk, but vastly genial. He maundered. A fool Cora was to let go of you, boy. You're telling me you've wasted money in the stock market, too. A little, Mark admitted. I've had no luck that way. Well, a fool Cora was. And how's it feel being a manager, lad? Fine. The Irishman looked at Mark sidelong over his glass, then up at the gold stars of the ceiling. Oh, yes, it's a fine ceiling. Wait until you've put on a couple of frosts, boy, and have to go hat in your hand hunting a backer. You lend money easy. You'll see all the barflies that have had their ten and twenty off you time and time again, and you'll see em run when they see you coming. Well, here tonight and hell tomorrow. So Chorus quit Billy Leffler, has she? The dear man, may his children all be acrobats. Twas Gus Daly taught the scut every trick she knows, the Napoleon of Broadway. Well, you wanted to be a manager, and here you are, and here's luck. It's a fine game, the finest there is, and mind you, I've been practicing burglar and a plumber. Drink up. They drank and returned to the green theater, 
resonant with the prelude of the next act. Mark was struggling in the half-lit thresh of men, strolling toward their seats, when Cosmo Rand halted him. You'd not mind coming up to supper in our rooms at the Knickerbocker. Mark accepted. The scene of the Maxim revel was lost to him, while he wondered what Cora wanted. He wouldn't engage her. Carlson's prejudice was probably valid. The old man swore that she was worthless, outside light comedy. Yet she had good notices in all her parts. She was famous for clothes. She signed recommendations for silks and unguents. She had made a dressmaker popular among actresses. She had played in a failure in London, whence came legends of a passionate duke. The duke's passion might be invented, like other legends, he mused. The flowing waltz music made him melancholy. What sort of woman was Cora, nowadays? Everyone changed. He himself had changed. He was getting callous to ready amities, explosions of mean jealousy. He knew nothing of Cora, really. She might be a different person, better tempered, less frank. Women were incomprehensible, anyhow. He would never understand them, doubted that anyone did, and sighed. He walked to Cora's hotel with a feeling of great dignity. She had mauled him badly, abused him, lied to him, and now she was seeking peace. Then, rising in the lift, he knew that this dignity had a hollow heart. He was afraid of Cora Boyle. This is awfully good of you, she said, shaking hands. Then she rested one arm on the shelf filled with flowers and smiled slowly, theatrically, kicking her rosy train into the right swath about her feet. Mark felt the display as a boast of her body. She resumed, There's really no sense in our looking at each other over a fence, is there? His face, seen in a mirror among the flowers, cheered Mark to a grin. He looked impassive and bland. He drawled, No sense at all, and stepped back. But she confused him. He had to speak. He said, That's a stunning frock. You always did notice clothes, didn't you? Cosmo, give Mr. Walling a drink. Her voice had rounded and came crisply with an English hint, but it was not music. It jangled badly against Rand's level. What'll you have, sir? From the table where there were bottles and plates of sandwiches. Mark considered this boy as they talked of the merry widow. He saw man's beauty inexpertly enough. Young Rand was handsome in the fragile, groomed manner of an English illustration. His chin was pointed. His eyes seemed brown. His curls lay in even bands. He had neither length nor strength. But he talked sensibly, rather shrewdly. There'll be a great deal of money lost bringing over Viennese pieces, of course. This thing's one in a thousand, quite charming. Mark asked, You've not been over here long? I? Rand laughed. Lord, yes. I'm a Canadian. Born in Iowa, as a matter of fact. I've been a good deal in England, of course. Oh, I was at your new piece the other night. Red Winter, I mean. How very nice you've mounted it. I really felt beastly cold in that second act. The snow's so good. Mark bowed, selecting a sandwich. The critics had praised the snow scene. Rand might truly admire it. If the snow hadn't satisfied Mark, it had pleased everyone else. 
He lost himself in thoughts of snow. Cora trailed her rose gown to the table and poured water into a glass of pale wine. A broad bracelet on her wrist clicked against the glass. She said, You and Carlson own all the rights to Red Winter, don't you? Yes. Are you going to send it to London? He laughed and put down his glass. London? What for? It had last just about one week. Cora smiled over his shoulder, retiring to the shelf of flowers. It would do better than that, Mark. I've played in London. I've never played there, but I've been there enough to know better. California Gold Rush. They don't know there was such a thing. Oh, I say, said Rand. Cora sipped some watered wine. The light shot through the glass and made a pear of glow on her throat. She was motionless, drinking. She became a shape set separate from the world in a momentary gleam. He knew that she was acting. Then she said sharply, I'll buy the English racks if you and Carson'll make me a decent figure. Oh, look here, you'd lose. I was talking to Ian Gale about it last night. It wouldn't make a cent in England. They wouldn't know what it's all about. And it's such a rotten play. There's nothing in it. She asked, looking at him. Can I have it? And her flat voice took fire in the question, achieved music. She must want the poor play badly. Rand's pink nails were lined along his mustache, hiding its silk. The room fell silent. Oh, sure, Mark said. You can have it, Cora. I'll see Mr. Carlson in the morning, but damned if I can make out what there is in the play. It's not the sort of thing you like, I know. But I'm sick of comedy, and that's all I'm ever offered here, and I'm sick of New York. Well, make an offer of the English rights, only I'm no bank, Mark. She swaggered to the piano and tamely played a few bars of the Merry Widow Waltz. She hadn't all of Ilden's grace, so seated, and the rose gown seemed sallow against the black of the piano. She had finished her scene. Mark saw the familiar stir of her throat as she hid a yawn. He promised to hurry the business of the English rights to the melodrama and took his leave. What had he feared? He tried to think in the corridor. Recapture, perhaps, by this woman who wasn't, after all, half as wicked as others. Her new elegance hadn't moved him. The stage did refine people. Cora had the full air of celebrity. She was now controlled, vainer, she still might be a shrew. He saddened, ringing for the lift, and thought of Cosmo Rand's future if Red Winter failed in London. The elevator deposited a page with a silver bucket, and this went clinking to Cora's door. Rand and she would drink champagne. Mark sank, pondering to the lounge, and stopped to buy a cigar there. It was almost one o'clock. Many of the lights had been turned out. The threaded marble lost sheen in the smoky gloom. Parties ebbed from the supper-room, and a wedge of dressed men waved to Mark. A candy merchant, in the lead, bawled to him, and Mark went to be introduced to an English actress on the millionaire's arm. She swayed, gracious and tipsy, involved in a cloak of jet velvet, her voice murmurous as brushed harp-strings, emerging from the pallor of her face. Above the browning gardenias on the cloak, she asked, Like this wrap? 
makes me look like a very big black cigar, and I should have a very broad red and gold band. The men, pressed about her fame, sniggered, respecting this lovely myth. She was assigned in legend to the desire of princes. The candy merchant grinned, cuddling her hand on his waistcoat. She tapped the brass edge of the turning door with a gardenia stem and smiled at Mark's silk hat, then at the millionaire. Am I talking too loud, cherished one? Shout your head off, the candy merchant said. It's a free country. Oh, only the bond are free, she proclaimed. She told Mark, Bond Street is getting frightfully shabby. Max Beerbohm says I do rather look like a big black cigar, don't I? Do stop pulling my arm, you dear fat thing. The car's here, honey. How dear of the car. We're going to sup somewhere, aren't we? Oh, no, to bed. Like a very big black cigar. She was drawn through the brazen doors away from Mark. The men pushed after her avidly. She went tottering to the great motor, was engulfed. Mark blinked at the waning smell of gardenias, waited for the motor to be gone, and walked into the street. He saw rain falling. There was no taxicab in sight along the street. From the west an orange palpitation flooded this darker way. Steam from a clamorous drill blew north about the white tower of the Times building. Wet cabs jerked north and south along the gleam of rails. The higher lights were gone. The rain dropped from an upper purple, and rain wrapped the crown of his hat as Mark strolled to the corner. Someone began to talk to him before he reached Broadway. Mark glanced at this beggar carelessly and paused to dig in a pocket for change. The shivering voice continued, Ain't like I'd come bothering you before. I ain't that kind. But you've got companies on the road, and honest, Walling, I'm as good as ever I was. You've maybe heard that I'm taking dope. Not so. Some of that bunch at Bill Leffler's office have been putting that out, honest. Three white-capped young sailors blundered past, all laughing, and jarred the shadowy body away from Mark. The man came shuffling back and clung to Mark's sleeve, his face lavender in the rainy light above a shapeless overcoat. He whispered on, Honest, some of the things that bunch at Leffler's place say about you and Carlson, but I ain't taken nothing, Walling. Had a run of bad luck. I'm on the rocks. And you've seen me run a show. You know I can handle a company. The light's so bad, said Mark, and your caller, I'm not just sure who... Oh, I thought you was acting kind of chilly to an old pal. I'm Jim Rothenstein, you know. I was stage manager for Carlson back when you was playing Kid and Nicoline. You know, I gave you your job. Cora Boyle, she brought you in to me and asked if there wasn't a little part. Honest, I ain't taking dope. That bunch. Mark gulped. Of course you're not. Some harsh drug escaped the man's rag. This was nightmare. Mark found a bill and held it out, backing from the shadow. Come round to my office some day, and I'll see what... A handsome cab pulled to the curb, and the driver raised his whip. Mark ran to shelter, shouting his address. The gray horse moved toward Broadway. Mark shoved up the trap and shouted to the driver, No! Go up Fifth Avenue! End of chapter 3